Love Talk Radio. Milwaukee Bucks, who then floated a 15-footer from the foul line, which struck the back iron, 
rose five feet to the top of the backboard and dropped through the hoop, clinching the Celtics' 13th NBA championship, sending Jerry West into chronic depression, and the Lakers to the mat once again as perennial pretenders to the throne. West would actually win the MVP of the championship series, the first and only time a member of the losing team was so selected. Um, LeBron would have been the second he should have been this past season. West's sustained brilliance just had to be awarded somehow. Adding insult to injury, West, Baylor, and Chamberlain would lose another Game 7 of the championship series the very next season, this time to another remarkable center, New York Nick captain Willis Reed, who limped out into the Madison Square Garden floor in Game 7 with a torn hip muscle pumped full of painkillers to a thunderous ovation of delirious Nick fans. Reed nailed his first two jumpers over Wilt in the opening minute, which ramped up the delirium of the Nick faithful by a factor of about a billion. Reed then took a seat and watched Nick guard Walt Frazier, who played one of the five greatest Game 7s of all time, tally 36 points, 19 assists, and 7 boards, as his teammates Barnett, Bradley, DeBusher, and Russell dismantled the shell-shot Lakers, leading by 36 at one point. But you want to hear another great Finals Game 7 line? In Game 7 of the 1962 NBA Championship, 110-107 overtime Boston win versus Elgin Baylor, who ended up with 41, Jerry West 35, and the Lakers, that guy, Bill Russell, played 53 minutes, scored 30 points, and snatched 40 rebounds. So let that marinate in your brain cells for a minute. Western Lakers finally won their first NBA title in Los Angeles in 1972, ironically going on their historic 33-game win streak the game after Elgin Baylor retired. They knocked off the Knicks in five games to bring home the gold ball. The finals championship tally in 84 was Celtics 13 titles, Lakers won. In head-to-head matchups, Boston 6, Lakers zip. Celtic Patriarch Arnold Red Orbach took perverse pleasure blowing stinky championship cigar smoke into the westerly winds of Los Angeles. So the series that seemed destined to take place was finally upon us Sunday, May 27, 1984, in historic Boston Garden. This time, the main protagonist reflected a new generation that wouldn't know Bill Russell from Bill Cosby, who'd be returning to network television that fall with a new family comedy. The Laker elders, like West, Baylor, Hot Rod Hunley, and Tommy Hawkins, were still feeling the knots deep in their gut at game time. Wilt feigned indifference, but we all knew Russell was still haunting his dreams. Even Kareem bore the scars of losing to Boston, as his Milwaukee Bucks featuring Oscar Robertson dropped Game 7 of the 74 Championship Series at home in Milwaukee to Havlicek, Dave Collins, and the 1974 Celtics. Larry Bird's current dilemma was he was a dominant superstar in a sport which featured an 80% African-American population by 1984 on its way to becoming 90% black within the next decade. The haters would be out in full force this time around. Magic, Kareem, Worthy, Wilkes, McAdoo, and Scott clearly carried the banner of black America heading into the 84 championship series, just like Dr. J was a standard bearer for the brothers and sisters versus Bill Walton in Portland in 1977. Similar to Walton in 77-78, Larry Bird became the number one threat to black dominance in the NBA during the past five years. Now he'd been coordinated at best player in the league on a team with the NBA's best record. The rich irony here, folks, was you couldn't find two people less racist than Bill Walton and Larry Bird. The great divide of distance and perception had kept Bird and Magic circling each other like two cheetahs in the wild since the 1979 Final Four. The anticipation of finally settling debate in the court had revved up hoop fans around the country into a lather. Once the ball finally went up at center court, these two franchises, with 10 
future Hall of Famers and two Hall of Fame coaches between them began to attend to the business at hand. Game one was a 115-109 Laker victory, with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar reminding everyone that the Lakers were much more than just magic. The six-time MVP led all scorers with 32 points and poof, just like magic. L.A. has stolen home court advantage with a combination of fast breaks and sky hooks in front of a stunned Boston crowd faithful. Game two looked like a lot like game one, and with seconds left in the contest, Los Angeles was leading by two with Kevin McHale on the line. In a two-point game, McHale missed the second free throw. The Lakers secured a rebound and called timeout. In hindsight, a timeout call made against Coach Pat Riley's instructions. In a series that's been dissected more than a medical school could ever, where hindsight was 10-10. If L.A. just pushes the ball after the rebound, they either run out the clock or somebody gets fouled. One or two free throws probably wins it, as the three-pointer still played a minuscule role in the NBA. Listeners, what I'm about to tell you is a true story confirmed straight from my lips to the basketball god's ears. In a moment that will live forever in the annals of basketball lore, I was watching this game with my cousin Gary visiting from Connecticut. As we were yelling and preening and prancing around my apartment, rejoicing in this stone-cold lock of a 2-0 Lakers series lead, making plans for the victory parade next weekend in L.A., my wife comes out of the bedroom wanting to know what all the fuss was about. I told her the Lakers were about to clinch this game with only 18 seconds left when she then uttered the sentence that I'm 150,000% sure cost the Lakers the series and changed NBA history forever. She looked at me matter-of-factly, without emotion or expression, and said, well, don't celebrate too early. 18 seconds, anything can happen. This coming from a person who thought my obsession with sports was borderline insane, who couldn't point out Kevin McKay on the lineup with nine black guys on the court. I knew in that instant that very bad things were about to happen. You've all seen the play a gazillion times on YouTube, frozen for all eternity. Magic inbounds the worthy, worthy passes across court to an open Byron Scott, except like a hanging curveball, the pass just stays up there in that Boston Garden ether held up by Red Orbach cigar smoke, something. Worthy never saw Gerald Henderson playing the pass like a free safety, pluck it out of the sky, and race in for the lay-in. Overtime. Well, don't celebrate too early. 18 seconds. Anything can happen. Crap. Of course, the Lakers can't recover in overtime, losing 124 to 121. Yes, imagine like the clock run out and all that, but the game was lost in regulation. Once the scene shifted back to L.A., the Lakers took their game two frustrations out in the Celtics to the tune of a 134-107 track meet in game three that featured at least 100 fast break dunks and 200 high fives by halftime. Once Larry Bird washed the Lakers' footprints off his chest, he spoke to the postgame media long enough to publicly challenge his teammates to pick themselves up off the mat, calling them sissies, a disgrace to the green legacy of Russell Cousy Havlicek and the Boston Celtics may not have been such a good idea for L.A. to run up the score, and certainly too early in the series to look ahead, but at this point it was clear to everyone not living in Boston that the Lakers were kicking some Celtic green ass, and if not for one errant pass, Boston would be looking at a purple broom and a gold dustpan in Game 4. James Worthy, 11 for 12 from the floor in Game 2, and a dunking machine in overdrive in Game 3, was cruising toward an MVP award, Magic was about to get the best of Bird yet again and prove that Bird's MVP award was merely a figment of the predominantly white media's wishful thinking. Boston was about to be embarrassed for the second time in two seasons following last year's unceremonious sweep at the hands of Milwaukee. But the Celtics decided to suit up for Game 4 anyway, and once again, the Lakers ran up a 13-point lead early in the game. 
But Casey Jones had finally let Dennis Johnson, who had pleaded for the assignment all series, to man up on Magic, taking the shorter, lighter, less savvy Gerald Henderson off him. This became Casey Jones' Bobby Fischer move of the series. Kids, Bobby Fischer is the greatest chess champion of the 20th century. Look him up. As DJ locked in on Magic and took him out of his comfort zone, Magic didn't shut down, but DJ disrupted the Magic Man's rhythm enough to start making him think more, and that's when the doubt slowly, methodically creeped in. The play that changed the series was as subtle as a sledgehammer. Boston clawed back to within six in the third quarter and showed the resolve that carried him through those brutal Eastern Conference wars with Philadelphia. Most of that resolve came with well-placed elbows, hips, knees, and thighs in the Lakers' anatomy. The Celtics slowed the game down, then began to bump and grind like R. Kelly with the Los Angeles Lakers, who didn't appreciate it one bit. Kareem hit a streaking Kurt Rambis down court with a perfect baseball pass for a sure layup when Kevin McHale met Kurt Rambis' neck with his forearm. An old-fashioned Oakland Raider clothesline hit, sending Rambis flying on his back and the Lakers in the tizzy. Once the verbal scrum was broken up, the Celtics knew they were on to something, as the Rambis takedown was a mere love tap in the Eastern Conference. This Laker team, for all their world pedigree, was a bit like that new improved Charmin tissue, a little more than soft around the edges. While Pat Riley, veins in his forehead bulging, raged the ref from the sideline, Casey Jones and, more importantly, Larry Bird shared the wink, knowing they had gotten into the Lakers' collective heads. They didn't like it rough. The crowd had now been taken out of the game as a mixture of shock and anger permeated the form. Kareem and Bird had to be separated soon after as the fourth quarter became even more physical. The young sung hero for Boston in this game would be Robert Parrish. Parrish, nicknamed the Chief, began muscling up on Kareem, hitting timely shots, denying Lakers with key blocks, and then rising to the occasion in the fourth quarter wound down. A major turning point came when Kareem, who led the Lakers with 32 points, fouled out with 30 seconds left in the final period. Hollywood couldn't have written a better script for Magic Johnson now to become the star of the show and close Boston out, as he had the NBA's biggest stage all to himself. The real events of the next five and a half minutes of Game 4 would haunt Magic for 12 excruciatingly painful months. The resilient Celtics forced an overtime period as Magic missed critical free throws, made horrible forced turnovers, and then to add insult to injury was burned on defense by a turnaround bird jumper from 15 feet with the game on the line to give Boston an improbable 129-125 to overtime victory, evening the series of two games apiece, a feat would seem impossible just 48 hours earlier. Cedric Maxwell and M.L. Carr taking gleeful turns, taunting Magic and Worthy on the court in overtime. Their schoolyard trash-talking, further enraging Riley and the forum faithful to no end. Celtic pride and Celtic arrogance had risen from the ashes and occupied center court. But worst of all, Boston had just punked L.A. on their home floor, taking the game and all the momentum from the team and the city. Bird finished this epic three-hour battle of wills and wits with 29 points and 21 boards giving us a glimpse of what to come. He's like a shark in the shallow water getting his first taste of fresh meat. The Lakers gave Boston a lifeline, and Bird was not about to waste the opportunity to make them pay and pay dearly. In the other locker room, Laker players were being revived with smelling salts, wondering what the hell just hit them. As were Laker fans. I was shooting right under the basket when Bird hit that game-winning shot in a warm June evening in 1984, and the feeling throughout the building spilling out into the corridors and into the parking lots deep into the city that night, save for the large contingent of Boston fans screaming at the forum, was that of being run over by an 18-wheeler, clocked with a sledgehammer, 
numb like a bully taking your lunch money. The anger was both audible and palpable, but so was the reality. More really bad things were about to happen. The temperature inside the air-conditionless Boston Garden at tip-off from Game 5 peaked at 97 degrees. The decibel level would peak close to eardrum shattering as the teams took the floor. Larry Bird would prove his legion of doubters and haters once and for all that in 1984 the Bird was truly the word and the Lakers would be exposed as fakers by the final buzzer. The master of the half-inch displayed his greatest gift, unparalleled mental toughness, as he effortlessly ran the floor, shooting, passing, and rebounding with both the energy of a litter of puppies and the tenacity of a pack of pit bulls. Bird and DJ each had eight points in the first quarter, while Mikhail scored eight of his own in the second quarter, while Boston slowed the Laker break, pushing their own offensive tempo early. L.A. hung tough despite shooting poorly in the first half as a clearly laboring Kareem Abdul-Jabbar started the game missing 10 of his first 13 shots in that blistering heat. Boston found themselves playing five against eight, though, as the three refs kept the Lakers relevant in the opening half, miring Boston deep in foul trouble as Maxwell, McHale, and Bird totaled nine fouls between them. McHale already had four with more than six minutes left in the half. Casey Jones rotated his lineup masterfully. While Bird started to use his size advantage over his shadow, Laker guard Michael Cooper, pulverizing the smaller Laker under the bucket for layups and boards, 12 rebounds in the first half alone. He had so gotten into Cooper's head, he was dropping one of his first, one of the few three-pointers he took in the series while Cooper was still joining with the rest. At this juncture, it became telling that the Lakers didn't have the size or physicality to bang with Boston over the long haul. Even with the Celtic bigs fouling at will, they didn't seem to care as the Lakers had no post-game other than Kareem to counter, and the captain was not the bruising Moses Malone by any means. Bird, Parrish, McHale, and Maxwell found a home in the paint and took up residence there the rest of the series. Dennis Johnson also showed why he became Larry Bird's favorite teammate of all time and still, God bless you, rest in peace, DJ, one of the great big-game players in the league. His body language on both ends was in attack mode the first 24 minutes, backing up Bird's 16 points with 15 of his own, hitting jumpers, taking it strong to the hole, bodying up on Magic. As I said before, watching those first 24 minutes, Boston was winning the effort game. L.A. was gassed with a good four minutes to go in the half, but 14 points from the young legs of Jane Worthy kept them close. For all the adversity of a hostile home crowd, the Lakers found themselves down only two points at halftime. Magic had eight points in the half, but the Lakers' fast break was non-existent, a major advantage for Boston. A transfixed basketball nation realized the next 24 minutes become a, could become a defining moment in the Bird versus Magic debate that had already captured our imaginations for five seasons. With two overtime games already, including an epic game four, and now this heavyweight matchup being played in desert-like heat, this series was primed to become an all-time classic. Fans had officially entered pure hoops nirvana, realizing something had to give and someone had to give between these two future Hall of Famers and one of their teams had to fold, either the irresistible force or the immovable object. By the time an exhausted 37-year-old Kareem had poured the sweat from his goggles and taken his final whiff of pure oxygen on the Laker bench, Bird had painted another masterpiece out in the parquet. 34 points on 15 of 20 from the field, 17 rebounds, 2 assists, and a block in a 121-103 Celtic victory that wasn't even that close. Mr. Momentum was now sporting a green jacket as the title was tilted toward the East Coast for the first time in the series. 
Now, friends, you won't find a living soul in the Laker organization then or now, from GM Jerry West to Larry Spriggs and Mitch Kupchak, the last two guys in the Laker bench, that did not believe they would come back to win game six and seven. Forget about the stats that say the winner of game five are odds-on favorites to win it all. The Lakers were toast. Bird had bedazzled, bewildered, and bamboozled L.A. in games four and five, and had done a masterful job of convincing his brothers-in-arms to follow his lead and basically just play harder than L.A. in every phase of the game, quicker to lose balls, fighting for rebounds, making the extra pass, the fundamentals, the discipline was a given. But most importantly, the Celtics and the rest of the country had witnessed a superior, talented L.A. squad blink first under the enormous pressure of this series. They had backed down when the game got down and dirty, Eastern Conference style. Incredibly, the Laker leader, Magic Johnson, has shown the most shocking display of tentativeness in his illustrious five-year career. The ball stuck like crazy glue when he tried to pass. Field goal attempts and free throws clanged off the rim, while passes that weren't picked off were way off target. His confidence waned with each passing quarter. The ringleader of what was called the greatest fast-breaking injury in NBA history after Game 3 pulled an unprecedented 180 and came crashing to earth a shell of himself after Game 5, along with most of his teammates. The Lakers were reminiscent of George Foreman and Zaire, victims of a flurry of alley-like combinations by Larry Bird. They'd been roped, doped, and now in the blistering heat of Boston Garden, smoked. The heat game didn't take all the starch out of those purple and gold uniforms, however. Abdul-Jabbar bounced back nicely for Game 6 in the air-conditioned form with 30 points, 10 rebounds, and 5 assists, a stellar all-around performance by the captain, while Byron Scott, shaking off his first finals jitters, finally pitched in with 11 points as Los Angeles broke the game open, unleashing showtime in a 36-point fourth quarter. Although Game 7 seemed a mere formality, a garden party, a garden party for Boston, starring presumptive MVP Larry Bird, the narrative would take an unexpected detour. Someone other than number 33 would begin the ultimate game, driving nails into the purple and gold coffin. Cedric Cornbread Maxwell, up to this point in these 1984 playoffs, a willing role player, and ML Carr's trash-talking sidekick, reminded his teammates pregame that he was still the 1981 Finals MVP and still proceeded to show the Lakers in the first half that his game still had a little bit of bite to match his bark. Maxwell took it upon his broad shoulders to school finals rookie and second-year man James Worthy in the fine art of bumping and grinding. Maxwell got to the free-throw line at will, getting Boston out to a great start and keeping the home crowd at a fever pitch. Bird was fine with being Maxwell's supporting castmate as time slowly, painfully started to run out of magic in his men. Boston dictated the pace, hit their shots, and controlled the boards throughout the game so the Lakers couldn't shift the fast break into overdrive. The Celtics still had to survive a late L.A. rally in the final minutes of the fourth quarter to the delight of 15,000 Celtic faithful. Red Orbach triumphantly lit another cigar as thousands of fans swarmed the parquet floor in the final buzzer, landing some well-timed fists and elbows of their own as departing gifts to the dejected Lakers as they ran for their lives. The ghost of Celtic past danced in the rafters, the leprechaun once again delivering that gold trophy at the end of the rainbow, number 14 in the glorious history of the franchise. Finals MVP Larry Bird capped a brilliant season with a transcendent championship series performance. He averaged 27.4 points a game, 48% from the field, got to the line average of five times a game where he made 84% of his free throws, grabbed 14.0 rebounds a game, three offenses, dished 3.6 assists per game, two steals and a block. 
and a partridge in a pear tree. He led all playoff scorers in 1984 with 632 points and all rebounders with 262. The cries of overrated became whispers after his masterpiece of the 1984 playoffs. Bird epitomized the word leader as he lifted the franchise on his back after the Game 3 debacle to shock both the Lakers and the haters. Dennis Johnson, Bird's new main man, continued to show he was a big-time player as Boston's second-leading scorer was 17.6 points and 4.7 assists. But it was DJ's work on the other end of the floor that transformed the pace of the series from breakneck to pedestrian with his up-close and personal defensive magic from end line to end line. Robert Parrish stood tall with 15.4 points and 11.4 big boards a game, the unheralded chief leading the team in offensive rebounds four per game while harassing Kareem in the paint. Kevin McHale was not yet the force he would become, backing up Cedric Maxwell at power forward, but the tag team of McHale and Maxwell would evenly split 26 points and 12 rebounds a game between them. The role players, from Gerald Henderson to Danny Ainge to ML Carr to Greg Kite, all chipped in by playing physical, hustler, opportunistic Celtic basketball, stifling the Lakers in Game 5 and 7 to win their second and by far most satisfying titles of the decade. The Lakers were led, no surprise, by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with 26.6 points at only 48% from the field. Not great by the captain's lofty standards, but a testament to Boston's physical play around the rim. He took in 7.4 rebounds, 4 assists, and 2 blocks. Second-year phenom James Worthy, a huge revelation for the Lakers, even in defeat, averaged 22 points a game on an incredible 63% shooting from the field against one of the best front lines in NBA history. That put the entire league on notice that a perennial all-star was born. He was one errant pass from being voted the MVP of the series. Norm Nixon was somewhere in Los Angeles sipping a cold one as he watched Magic's Folly, saying, I told you so, to whomever would listen. Nixon's sheer talent, shooting, quickness, and swagger was sorely missed in this series as he would have taken major ball-handling pressure off Magic in the backcourt. Irvin Johnson wanted the ball, and he got it. Be careful of what you ask for. But let's give props also to the Boston Garden crowd, who still made the parquet floor one of the greatest home court advantages in team sports history and turned out in force at the fabulous forum. Few have gotten out of Boston's Causeway Street building alive. Bird would have traded all the post-game hoopla for a cold beer and a stoop on his porch in French Lick, Indiana, securing the knowledge that the biggest prize was not the banner or the trophies or the parade, but the fact that he had thoroughly thoroughly dominated Magic Johnson in the biggest series of their lives. Magic, by contrast, faced the longest summer of his young life. For the first time in his illustrious career, the center of attention for all the wrong reasons. Irvin put up his usual magical finals MVP numbers versus the Celtics, 18 points, 7.7 rebounds, and an NBA finals record 13.6 assists per game in the seven games. But his 31 turnovers, the shot clock violation in game two, the two enormous missed free throws in Game 4, and just shaky decision-making throughout the series sealed his fate as the G-O-A-T of the 84 Finals, and I don't mean greatest of all time. He sequestered himself in his new Bel Air mansion, a nice consolation prize, and huddled with his best friends, Isaiah Thomas and Mark Aguirre, trying to make sense of the dozens of miscues that cost the Lakers a championship. 
The perception of the Lakers now is a physically gifted but mentally weak team, a team that wilted under pressure after two consecutive losses to the physical Eastern Conference foes Philadelphia and Boston, with Magic, now renamed Tragic by Kevin McHale, a pariah as the team's fumbling, stumbling, bumbling leader, would drive the media narrative for the next 12 months. The Laker franchise now stood at 0-8 versus Boston in the finals, the most one-sided quote-unquote rivalry in sports history. One could only imagine Orbach, Russell, Havlicek, and Bird sitting around the Celtic offices soaked with champagne, puffing stogies, polishing their hardware, and cackling at the thought of those West Coast sissies crying in their quiche. The problem from Boston is they had humiliated two of the most competitive, prideful humans that ever laced up a pair of sneakers or wore an elegantly tailored suit. Magic and his soulmate Pat Riley were not become, to become the purple and gold doormat Celtic supremacy, and no one knew this better than Larry Bird. Bird had no intention of resting on his championship laurels that summer. Cooper believed that Magic's poor finals performance shamed him into working longer and harder in the offseason, pushing himself to the next level physically and mentally as he plotted his revenge on Bird, the Celtics, but most importantly on his critics, who officially anointed Bird now as the best in the game and possibly one of the best of the all-time. The 1984-85 season would have little theme would have theme of redemption for both Magic and L.A. Little did anyone dream that an aging wonder would once again rise to the top against all odds to become the X Factor in the revenge of the Lakers. The real winners were all of us fans who saw one of the greatest finals in NBA history. <laughs> 